Well, this morning we're going to be talking about an incredibly important subject. Uh, This morning we're going to be talking about something that has uh, had an incredible impact on my own life, something in my life that has motivated many of my decisions. At one point in my life, this thing uh, motivated me to leave my friends and family behind and move halfway across the country. It has at times put me on my knees in tears before the Lord. Uh, We are, of course, this morning talking about money. We're talking about money. It is an important thing. Money is significant in this world. Most of us don't need much convincing to believe that, that money is significant. Uh, We're in the middle of a recession. A recession is proof that money is important. Limit the amount of money on the planet and the whole globe slips into depression. Money is very significant. Uh, I think the importance of money was proven um, not long ago, last presidential election. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, John McCain, Barack Obama, they begin to square off. What are the issues at the beginning of that campaign? Two foreign wars, uh, climate change, health care. Those were the things they were talking about. But then the recession comes. People start losing their jobs. Retirement funds shrink. All of those issues get put on the back burner. And all anyone's talking about is money. All that that mattered was our paychecks, our wallets. That's what motivated people to vote. I think uh, Time Magazine got it right when they said Barack Obama won because most people in America believed he was better for their wallets at the end of the day. That's because money is incredibly significant in world events. But it's not just significant for the world. It's significant for our individual lives. Money is a, a big motivator in many of our decisions. You students, you are here at Texas A&M at least in part because of a desire for money. You want to earn money when you graduate, so you're here. For the rest of us who work more than 40 hours a week, why do we do that instead of go fishing? For money. Because money matters to our lives. Money has a huge impact on our daily lives. Now, no one understands that truth better than God himself. God cares greatly about our money and about how we use it. If you just survey the Bible, if you look at what God says about money, it's very interesting. About 2,350 verses of the Bible dedicated to the subject of money. God has a lot to say about money. Jesus shows up, and out of his teachings, a full 25% of the sayings of Jesus are dedicated to the subject of money. Do you know, Jesus spoke more about your money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Why did he do that? Because Jesus cares about your money. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, For where your treasure is, your money is, there your heart will be also. Jesus recognized that what we do with our money demonstrates what we love. Where you put your money, it demonstrates what you value in life. That's a, a simple equation. Where your money goes, your heart will follow. Our money is incredibly important to God. He cares deeply about what we do with it. So it's no surprise that in the book of Philippians, Paul at some point is going to turn to the subject of money. It's too important to miss. So turn to chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at the subject of money this morning. Now, um, we're, we're going a little bit out of order. I don't know if you recognize that. We're starting in verse 10. Um, I thought about it, and I decided that money wasn't the best subject to cover next week on Mother's Day. So flip things around a bit. We're going to get to the middle of chapter 4 next week. We're going to study the end of it this week. Now, verses 10 through 23 are actually basically a thank you letter. The Philippians had given a gift financially to support Paul, and so he writes a thank you letter to them. 
Uh, And he puts it at the end for a, a significant reason. In the ancient world, you prioritized something in a letter that you were writing by putting it at the end. Whatever's at the end of the letter, that's what people are left with. That's what goes ringing in their ears as they walk away. So this is really significant, what Paul has to say to the Philippians in this thank you letter about their financial gifts. So if you look with me, we're going to read the passage starting in verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, as we read this passage, I don't know if you caught it. Um, it's actually a really awkward passage. It's actually really awkward. It's full of clarifications and backtracking. Multiple times, Paul says, wait, wait, wait. Not that I seek the gift itself. Nevertheless, you've done well. Uh, not, not that I speak from want. Paul's constantly clarifying what he's saying. It's like um, Paul kind of stammers through this passage when you read it and study it. It really sounds like stammering. I think what Paul's um, demonstrating for us is even as an apostle filled with the Holy Spirit, it is not easy for a paid minister to speak on the subject of giving. It's, it's not easy. It is inherently awkward. It uh, feels like a little bit of conflict of interest for us to speak on giving who receive a salary through your gifts. I'm going to admit that right at the beginning of the sermon. This isn't easy to speak on. It feels weird. And yet Paul is proof that it's too important to skip. We've got to suck up the awkwardness, us preachers, and get up here and talk about money because it is vital to your lives. What you do with your money is essential to your spiritual lives. God cares deeply about how you think about money and what you do with your money. And so Paul, in this very profound passage, he's going to teach us two things. Number one, he's going to teach us what money can't buy you. He wants you to know what is the limitation of money. We started this sermon by talking about the power of money, what it can do. Well, Paul clarifies there's something money can't do and you need to know it. You need to understand its limitations. But then having limited what money can do, Paul's going to spend the rest of the passage talking about what your money can do. What can it accomplish in this world? What good can it do? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. What can our money not do and what can it do? What can it accomplish and what can it not accomplish? We're going to start with the negative. What can our money not do? Well, very clearly at the beginning of the passage, Paul tells us your money cannot buy you contentment. Your money cannot buy happiness. Now, this is not just a biblical concept. Here's Time Magazine's article two weeks ago on the effects of the recession. Did a bunch of research and here's what they found. 
Money does not buy happiness. Scripture asserts this. Research confirms it. Once you reach the median level of income, roughly $50,000 a year, wealth and contentment go their separate ways. And studies find that a millionaire is no more likely to be happy than someone earning one-twentieth as much. After $50,000, you are less likely to be happy in life than you were before it. That's amazing. Here's what Ben Franklin, one of the founders of our country, concluded. Very wise man. Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of it filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want another way. Uh, Paul talked about this nature of money that it can't give us happiness. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Paul's saying that your money is more likely to buy you ruin than happiness. It's more likely to hurt you than to provide contentment for you. It's not possible for money to buy you contentment. All the money in the world cannot buy happiness. That's not just a song lyric. That's a biblical truth. You can't buy contentment. Instead, look at what Paul says about contentment. Look with me again, starting in verse 11. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's three things that Paul's saying to us about contentment. Number one, contentment is unrelated to your circumstances. Paul had experienced the widest possible breadth of circumstances in the course of his life, both abundant riches where he had everything he could want and utter poverty where he suffered need. He didn't even have money for food. And he says, in all of that breadth of circumstances, I had unending contentment because contentment's unrelated to circumstances. It's not connected to my paycheck or my possessions. Now, I do want us to pause for a moment. I want you to reflect on how radical and subversive that statement is to a consumer society like we live in. You are bombarded 24 hours a day with advertisements that are designed to convince you that contentment is one new outfit, a flatter TV, or a fancier car away. That's what your whole world is telling you, and that is all a lie. We are bombarded with a constant lie from our capitalistic society telling us that happiness can be bought. Just go to Best Buy and it's yours. That's a lie. No amount of money can ever buy contentment. No possessions can ever add up to happiness because contentment is absolutely unconnected to salary or possessions. Circumstances have nothing to do with contentment. You can't buy contentment. Instead, where is it found? Paul tells us that contentment comes from God. That's the point of verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, uh, that verse is often taken out of context. Uh, I can do anything through God's strength. Well, I got to tell you, I I can't go fly. I'd really like to be able to fly through God's strength, but that's not what this verse is saying. I, I can't do anything without qualification. This verse is bound up in context. This verse is saying, in this context, I can find contentment, joy, in any circumstance through God who strengthens me. Paul's telling us, basically, contentment is a supernatural thing. It's not not a natural thing. Contentment isn't something you manufacture. 
You don't suck it up and grit your teeth and choose to be happy and content with life. You can't do that. It's not within the range of options for human beings to be content. That's why the whole world is struggling after contentment because we can't make it. It's not natural. It must come from God. Contentment is a supernatural creation of God in the heart of the believer who will seek it from him. I think this verse is part of the explanation of why Paul spends so much of chapter 3 talking about his relationship with Jesus. Remember, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Paul said everything in his life except Jesus is comparatively human excrement compared to the value of knowing him more. Why does Paul prioritize Jesus so much? Because only through a growing relationship with Jesus can Paul find contentment in life. That's the only place satisfaction can be found is through relationship with Jesus Christ. The closer Paul draws to Jesus, the more content in life he is regardless of circumstance. The more happiness he finds, the closer he draws to God. God is the one and only source of contentment in your life. You can't buy it. You can't manufacture it. You are absolutely dependent on Jesus Christ and his life in you to experience contentment. That's the second thing Paul has for us. Contentment, it comes as a supernatural gift from God. Um, But it doesn't come overnight. There is not some contentment switch in my brain that Jesus reaches down and flips and immediately contentment comes. Uh, Notice, third thing that Paul tells us about contentment, it must be learned. He tells us that twice. Contentment is a secret. It is a mystery that must be learned through experience. We, we grow in contentment over the course of our lives as we learn, like Paul did, to prioritize Jesus Christ. To put Jesus first in our lives. As we learn to do that over and over again, we grow in contentment. We grow in contentment as we experience hard times where we are forced to rely upon God to provide. We grow in contentment as we see Him be faithful. I, I saw this in my own life. One of the um, biggest moments in, in my life that has helped me to grow in contentment and in and trust in the Lord happened the first summer after my, I started seminary. Uh, I and a number of guys moved to this old house. We thought it would be the coolest place to live. Um, it's a hundred-year-old house. Problem was we moved in and found out um, it's not cheap to live in an old house. <laughs> Especially when you move in in August and you're paying like thousands of dollars for the air conditioner. So we had these huge unexpected bills at the same time that my summer tuition bill hit. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I had a big unpaid balance on my Discover card freaked me out. I was one of those kids who grew up um, in a household that pounded us over and over again, thou shalt not have debt. Thou shalt not have debt. Don't carry debt on credit cards. It's super scary. You don't want to do that. So my Discover bill comes and I can't pay it. I've already got a job. There's, there's no go get a job. I've already got it and it's not going to be enough. It's not going to pay it. That was actually the moment I talked about earlier in the sermon when I literally fell on my knees in tears before the Lord because I was so scared. I was so freaked out. Here I am, a seminary student without hope of paying this, turned to the Lord in desperation about, I think less than a week later, God brings an unexpected scholarship my way and it pays off the Discover bill. Totally unexpected, God provided. And and for me, that was this huge moment where I learned, where I grew in contentment because I saw as I turned to the Lord, he provides. He can be trusted to meet my needs. I can trust the guy up there. He's gonna take care of me. So contentment is something learned over time. We gradually grow in it. So Paul's point at this part so far in his his thank you letter is, is to draw some boundaries around the power of money. Yes, money is an incredibly powerful thing, but always remember it will never buy you happiness. It cannot buy you contentment. Contentment can only be found 
through a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Contentment is a supernatural gift from God that he gives you through Jesus. So find contentment there. Instead of wasting your time trying to buy happiness, spend your money in better ways. There's plenty of great things your money can accomplish. Awesome things in your life and this world that your money can do. And that's where Paul turns next and what we want to look at next. What can our money do? Well, starting in verse 19, Paul tells us our money can meet our physical needs. Look with me at verse 19. Paul says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, um, verse 19 is one of those verses that is often taken out of context and misinterpreted by a branch of Christianity called prosperity theology. This is a health and wealth gospel. Lots of big churches out there, uh, lots of preachers on TV who are telling you that God's will for your life is to be prosperous, to be healthy and wealthy. They use verses like this to say it's God's will to give you everything. He wants to give you everything. Here's how um, one of their uh, preachers, a guy named Rod Parsley, the senior pastor at World Harvest Church, I think using this verse and verses like it, here's what he told his congregation. Some of you better get ready to drive around in neighborhoods you never thought you'd be able to afford to live in. Some of you better go down to that Lexus and Mercedes dealership and just sit down in one of those things with all that leather all over it. And when they say, what are you doing? Just say, well, I'm just feeling out what my father's going to give me. Well, Rod has um, committed two classic Bible study blunders as he looks at Philippians 4.19. Number one, um, he misses the wording here. Uh, Paul doesn't say uh, that God will supply our desires. He says needs. I'm guessing for most of us, Alexis ain't in the list of needs for us. Okay, so we've got we to gotta observe the details. It's needs, not desires. Second thing that, that Rod misses, um, where was Paul when he wrote verse 19? Where was he? Prison. Apparently for Paul, on the list of needs, freedom isn't one of them. I don't even think Paul's caring about a Mercedes at this point. He isn't even free to go to the store. Okay, so as we look at the Bible, as we study it in context, we realize uh, God isn't in the business of satisfying all of our desires. That's not what it's about. God is in the business of providing for what we truly need. I think a way to really understand this verse and what it's getting at is to look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about the subject of giving. And he says, each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. I want you to look here. Paul's saying, as you give to the Lord, as you're faithful to give your money, God will provide for you. He will give you an abundance. But what is the purpose of God giving to you? Is it so that you can go buy a Mercedes or a bigger house? No, it's so that you will have an abundance for every good deed. Point is, God will take care of our needs. He will give us individually exactly the money that each of us needs to fulfill every good deed he's put on our plate. That'll be a different amount for each of us. For some of you, it will be more. God has called you to do things that require more money. So he's going to give you more money in this life so that you can fulfill those good deeds. For some of it's going to be less. God has some things on the cheap in mind for us that he's going to do. So he's going to give us less money in life. Mount doesn't matter. The point is God gives you everything you need to fulfill every good deed he's put on your plate. That's the measure. Is God giving me a Lexus or a Mercedes? That's not the measure. It's will God give me everything I need to fulfill his will in my life? Yes. He will always take care of your needs when you look at them from that perspective. He'll never leave you high and dry. 
He'll never leave you so little that you can't participate in his work, in his church, in his kingdom. Okay, so that's the first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that God gives us money to meet our physical needs, to enable us to do good deeds in the life of his kingdom. Second thing that Paul tells us, what else can money do? What well, can provide for the physical needs of other people? can take care of other people's physical needs. That's Paul's point in verses 14 through 16. He says that, Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. They had given him money to meet his practical needs. It's helpful to have some background here. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. It's house imprisonment. And, and when you were a house prisoner in Rome, uh, you had to provide for your own food and lodging. Now, there's a little bit of a catch-22 there. What can't you do? You can't go get a job. You're, you're under house arrest, but you still have to pay for your lodging and your, and your food. So Paul was in desperate straits. He was absolutely dependent on the charity of other believers to take care of his needs, or otherwise he's going hungry. The Philippians had stepped in. They had used their money to care for Paul's practical needs. I think that's a, a visible demonstration of what it means to be part of the body of Jesus Christ. We give to each other. We share with each other when anyone's in need. I mentioned earlier this semester that I think as a church we should not be waiting on the government's bailout program. We are each other's bailout. Right here in this room, we are economic bailout to one another. When you're in need, don't go to the government. Come to me. Come to us. That's what the body of Christ is. We share with each other. That's how it's meant to work. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one in need. Do you realize that one of the primary reasons that God calls you to get a job is so that you can share with others? Primary purpose of having a job is so that not only can you meet your needs and the needs of your family, but you have money to give to others. That's why we get jobs so that we can share with brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. I, I think this is probably the primary way that God fulfills verse 19, the promise we just spoke about. How is it that God takes care of the physical needs of a believer who is in poverty or is destitute? Well, God could allow them to win the lottery. He could do that. That'd be nice and easy and quick. Not usually how God works. Instead, what he does is he moves other believers to give, other believers to show charity. Lottery would have been quicker, but it wouldn't have been nearly a blessing to the body of Christ that it is when we give. When we give to meet each other's needs, both parties are blessed. I'm blessed when I give, you're blessed when you receive. Okay, so what does our money do? Our money is designed to meet just not only our own physical needs, but the needs of others here. That's how we glorify God as we care for the needs of others in the body. That's the second thing your money can do. Let's move on to the third thing. What else can our money do? It can advance the gospel. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 22. There's a little bit of irony. Sweet little way Paul ends the book of Philippians. Verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I think Paul's smiling at this point. Got a little wry grin on because Caesar's the guy who had Paul in prison. Caesar's the guy who's saying, I'm God, not Jesus. And yet in Caesar's own household, Paul had brought people to Jesus Christ in faith through their financial gifts. Because the Philippians were giving to the ministry of, of Paul, Paul was free to go share the gospel, and as a result, there were conversions happening in the heart of enemy territory. Their gifts had, in a very real and practical way, advanced the gospel in the center of darkness on earth in that time period, Rome itself. What an amazing ministry from Paul. What an incredible thing to say. 
Because of their gifts, Paul had actually said, chapter 1, verse 5, we looked at that earlier, that they were his partners in the gospel. Even though Paul's the one out doing the ministry in Rome, sharing the gospel, because they were giving to him financially, they were true partners in his ministry. Now, that is actually the theological reason why we did the commissioning this morning. Why do we have all those folks on the stage? Because what you give to them financially and through prayer means that you are their partners. They go, you stay, but you're both equal in God's eyes. Your gifts enable them to go share the gospel. You get as much reward as them in God's eyes. You are equal with them because you are their genuine partners. That's what it means to give. And I, I do want to share with you a little bit. I, I think that it's, it's probably right for you who, who give to Grace Bible Church to know how your money is spent, to know how it is advancing the gospel. When you put a dollar in the offering plate, what is happening to that money? Well, uh, first thing I want to tell you is, is just so you know, if you don't label it for another special gift, if it's just to the general fund, um, of every dollar you give us, about 30% goes directly to world missions. In total, about 30% of our budget goes directly to missions. So 30 cents on the dollar is leaving our church and going to support the task of taking the gospel to the far reaches of the planet. Uh, Second thing, when you think about your money, if you look around this building and over at the Anderson campus, uh, you'll notice we don't spend a lot of money on the buildings. They're, They're adequate. They're not elaborate. The reason we do that is a strategic choice as a church to spend the highest percentage we can directly on ministry and missions. When we have to replace an air conditioner, we're going to do that. But as much money as we can, we're going to spend on ministry and missions because we want your money to have as much impact as possible to advance the gospel. Towards that end, I want to share with you a couple success stories that your money has brought about this year. Two things that your money has accomplished in advancing the gospel. First success story, Easter extravaganza. We had about 300 people out here to the Southwood campus about a month ago participated in an Easter egg hunt. Of those 300, we had 18 new families never visited Grace Bible Church before. And we had one little nine-year-old girl trust Jesus Christ for the first time at the Easter extravaganza. Um, That little girl's destiny was changed for eternity because you gave. Your money funded this event. It paid for the pizzas. It paid for all the eggs, all the little things. You did that. And as a result, we've got 18 new families and a little girl who will be with us for eternity. Now, your money didn't buy her conversion. We'll make that clear. But God used your money as a tool, a means to bring her into the kingdom. That's incredible, the effect that your money had. Just one example. Here's another example. Uh, Six missionaries in northern Italy, the Roberts, the Guides, the Lukers. Um, Your money this year has enabled them to plant two brand new churches in northern Italy, one of the spiritually darkest places on earth. Hardly any evangelical believers. You have provided the money they needed to go plant two brand new churches. That's the impact your giving is having at advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the earth. It's making a huge difference. Your money can't buy you contentment, but it can do a lot for the kingdom of God. God uses your money as a tool to advance his gospel to the far reaches of the earth. That's the third thing that Paul has for us that our money can do. Fourth thing, it can earn us eternal reward. Look with me at verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Uh, Paul is using accounting language here, the language of a, of a legal accountant. Um, if, you, if you translate this a little more literally, uh, here's what Paul is saying. Not that I set my heart upon your gift, but I set my heart upon the interest that accrues to your account. 
The interest that accrues to your account. Paul's not talking about money we get in this life. Remember we said that's not what God's up to. He's talking about in the next life. When we stand before Jesus Christ for judgment, what does our money give us now? If we are giving our money away to God's kingdom now, it earns for us interest when we stand before God. It earns for us eternal reward. Paul speaks in other passages of scripture about what that reward is. First of all, it's honor. The person who is a faithful steward with God's money in this life will stand before Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ will say in the hearing of everyone, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll receive the reward of honor. You'll also receive the reward of new opportunities. That steward who's faithful with a few things, with our money in this life, will be given new responsibilities in heaven, opportunities to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And so our money is an opportunity to invest right now in eternity, to invest in eternal reward. I think that, you know, if you really try to boil this down and say, what, what exactly is Paul saying here? I think the, the point that I walk away with, Paul's trying to remind us that God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. What you give to the work of the Lord in this life, God will repay you with interest in eternity. God's not going to leave that debt on the column. He's not about that. Now, again, he's not necessarily going to give you money in this life, but he will give you reward in the next life. That's the principle to be tied in 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, it says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul's saying, if you give abundantly in this life, if you give sacrificially to the work of God in this life, you will be richly rewarded in the next life. It's a guarantee. God will repay you richly. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is actually, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 8, he's going to talk to the church in Corinth about the church in Philippi. It's a kind of neat little passage, a little uh, outside account of the church in Philippi. Uh, he's going to talk about them as givers. So look with me at chapter 8 of, first, of 2 Corinthians. My bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Sorry. Flip a little bit to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Very, very interesting passage. Very significant. Paul starts in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's the church of Philippi. It's in Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. What Paul's telling us is that the Philippians understood this principle. The Philippians were a poor people. This was a very poor church, the church in Philippi. And yet Paul says, out of their poverty, they begged me for the favor of participating financially in my ministry. They didn't have the money to spare, but they said, we don't care. We're going to give anyways because we can't pass this up. The Philippians understood what they gave now was an investment in eternity. What they gave now would be richly rewarded. I think that the Philippians, in their minds, they were getting in on the ground floor of a great investment. Financially participate in Paul's ministry early on, and they're going to reap incredible rewards. You know, we, we tend in America to idolize men like Warren Buffett, who have spent money in companies early on and made an incredible profit. But I'm telling you, uh, Warren Buffett has nothing on the Philippians. 
These people have been dead for 2,000 years, and yet I promise you they are in heaven today still enjoying the fruit of their giving, still enjoying the profit that God has given them, the reward that he has given them because they invested their money wisely in this life. They'll be enjoying it for the rest of eternity. What the Philippians understood is that the question that's before us this morning when the offering plate goes by is not how much should I give as if it were an obligation. The question is how much can I give? How much today can I afford to invest in my eternity? It's really interesting to look at investments comparatively. Uh, Probably all of us right now are reeling in our investments 401ks, our retirement funds have tanked no matter how good they were promised to be. And yet God's telling us if you want to make sure that your money stays safe, that your money earns interest, that it grows with abundance, then give it to me. You give it to me in this life, I'll reward you richly with interest you can't even imagine in the next life. So what does your money do now? Your money can right now earn you reward in heaven, abundant interest, profit in heaven if you will give it. You'll give it away, you'll receive it back with interest from the Lord on that day. So that's, that's the fourth thing our money can accomplish for us. It can earn eternal reward. Fifth thing, it can offer pleasing worship to God. Look back at Philippians chapter 4. Let me read you verse 18. Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What Paul says is that your gift to me was actually ultimately a gift to God himself. Your generosity to me was actually an act of worship to God. Your sacrifice worshiped God. Now that's a very biblical principle. From cover to cover of the Bible, we see the connection of giving and worship. You see that throughout the Old Testament. What was the primary way you worshiped in the Old Testament? You sacrificed an animal. You took an animal from your flock and you sacrificed it in worship to God. Now, that kind of worship cost you something. You couldn't sell the animal. You couldn't eat the animal. You were giving it to God. That act of sacrifice was itself an act of worship. That's how God designed it. He designed worship to cost us something. He designed worship and sacrifice to go hand in hand. That's why uh, King David, in the book of 2 Samuel, he is offered by a very kind man a team of oxen to go sacrifice to the Lord. But King David says, no, no, I, I can't take from you and offer to the Lord something that has cost me nothing. So David pays the guy, full market value. It's not worship if I didn't pay for it. Worship is sacrifice. That's a very biblical principle. When we sacrifice, we worship God. It is through giving that we worship because in the act of sacrifice, we are demonstrating to God our love for him and our dependence upon him. When I open my hands and give to him of my money, of my time, of my possessions, of my resources, I'm showing to myself and to everyone else how much I love him and how much I'm dependent upon him for. Again, I think this helps us answer another question this morning. How much should we give? Well, God doesn't set any percentages in the New Testament. There's not some percentage. And ultimately, in God's eyes, it's not about the amount of money you give. It's about the act of sacrifice. So some of you in this room are very wealthy. For you, for it to be a sacrifice, you're going to have to give something like 25% of your income for it to actually hurt, for you to actually feel sacrifice. Others of you are single mothers or college students. For you, 5% is plenty to feel sacrifice. It's not about the amount. It's about the act of sacrifice. 
When we give what is ours to God, it is an act of worship to him. So I, I would tell college students, college students are often thinking, well, I shouldn't give to God now. I'll wait till I get a job. No, um, give to God now, even if it's just a dollar. Even if you're just giving 50 bucks to these guys who are going overseas, do it. Because even if it's a little, it's not the amount that matters. It is an act of worship that you gave anything. It's an act of worship that you sacrificed. I really believe, I'm not positive this, but I'm pretty sure that this morning when we gathered together, our primary act of worship to God was not standing and singing. It's when you put something in the offering plate. That's probably the primary act of worship you gave. Because standing and singing, that's wonderful, that's important, that's significant, but it didn't cost you anything. When you put something in the offering plate, when you give it to one of these guys going overseas, when you give it to God's work, your sacrifice demonstrates your love and dependence upon God. That is the preeminent act of worship that we give. It's the fifth thing that our money can do. It can worship God. As I open my hands and give to him, I offer to him worship. Worship that pleases him. It's a pretty amazing verse there, verse 18. It tells me that my money can delight the heart of God. Almighty, sovereign God and above heaven and earth, he is delighted when I give my money. Okay, so what can our money do? Well, it's important to start with what it can't do. It can't buy happiness. It can't buy contentment. All the money in the world will never buy you contentment because it can't. Contentment is only found through a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Getting to know him better and better is the one and only secret to happiness in life. But that's a limitation on money, but there's a lot that money can accomplish. Our money can do incredible good in this world and in our lives. So God wants us to quit trying to buy happiness with our money and instead use it to meet our physical needs and the physical needs of others in this body. He wants us to use it to advance his gospel on earth, to give to ministry, to give to missions. He wants us to use it to invest it now towards eternal reward. Give it to him so that we can receive back from him with interest in the next life. He wants us to use it as a tool for worship, an offering to give to him to show how much we love him and depend upon him. Now, what I'd like to do now is, is actually ask Eddie Colson to come up. Eddie is our elder for the Southwood campus. I want to give you guys some specific applications this morning about how you can participate financially in the ministries of Grace Bible Church. Um, but I feel like it's probably a good idea for someone who doesn't draw a salary here to give you the specifics of applications. So I've asked Eddie to come up and tell you how you can be a partner in what God is doing at Grace Bible Church. Thanks, Blake. As Blake has been talking about, I think it's important for us to note that Grace Bible Church is very much a mission-driven church dedicated to the Great Commission and to the Great Commandment with the vision to raise up next-generation leaders to win our world for Christ. And just as we saw with those coming up front and being commissioned to go, that is what Grace Bible Church, that's what drives Grace Bible Church. Go and make disciples and To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what drives Grace Bible Church. We have been committed over the years to never force talks about giving. But when the scripture, like today, addresses giving, then it's part of our learning as a church as well. And as we've seen today in Philippians, financial giving blesses not only the recipient but the giver as well. 
God has been extremely gracious to Grace Bible Church over the years through the faithful gifts of our people. And we're encouraged to report that we are close to budget. We are very close to budget this year, this fiscal year for Grace Bible Church. And we've raised close to $900,000 toward the Southwood campus purchase and renovation. That's a huge praise. $900,000 toward the purchase and renovation of this facility. We thought it would be a good thing for us to make you aware of some of the changes we've made to improve the communication about and the facilitation of giving to Grace Bible Church. First, you'll see in the slide, uh, see a giving header on the home page of the Grace Bible Church uh, website, www.grace-bible.org. If you go to that page and you click on this header, you'll be taken to a new giving webpage that details the many ways that you can give. Again, you can see on the, on the slide here. Also included in your bulletin was an insert today. We ask that you keep this insert for the information and also allow it to serve as a reminder to financially participate in the ongoing mission and vision of Grace Bible Church. With this insert, let me highlight a couple of things that are found on it. First, online giving is now available. For those of you who are... uh, well, I won't go into age and everything, but it's just the way to give. It's the way to do it uh, if, if you're with the times. Um, I'm not saying I am. I'm just saying it is the way to do it if you're with the times. We've taken great care to ensure that your transaction will be secure and well documented. Also note that the name of the growth fund has been changed to the Campus Improvement Fund to better reflect the purpose of that money that account. Also, the name of the Southwood Capital Campaign Fund has been changed to the Debt Retirement Fund to clearly reflect the purpose of that. Now that we have this property and have renovated it, the purpose is a debt retirement. And you'll see that there are a total of five funds each for specific purposes. There's additional information on the insert and certainly on our webpage for special giving arrangements as well. As we think about giving for Grace Bible Church, it's obviously a privilege for all of us to work with one another and for the leadership of Grace Bible Church to be part partners with you in this. I am certainly encouraged today from the words of Philippian that, that Blake talked about, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. May the Lord find each and every one of us faithful to the stewardship he has entrusted to us. Let's pray together, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, it's good to be in your house today worshiping you. Thank you for the resources that we have as a church and that we have individually. May you find us faithful in giving so that we can be a church that sends people forth to make disciples and to teach folks all across this world. May you find us faithful in loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as you would love us.
Thank you, Lord, for the vision of this church. Thank you for the resources we have. Thank you, Lord, that you talk to us. And pray, Lord, that we will continue to listen. Thank you for this time this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.